Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Anybody not read the book? Does everybody know what the book is? Do, would you like me to give you a synopsis? Because I realise that some people, some people just like to join the discussion, but perhaps haven't had a chance to read the book. So maybe I'll do that first. So this month's book was Hunger by Roxane Gay, and she calls it a memoir of her body. Um, her body being that of a larger woman, a larger black queer woman. And she describes her relationship with her body largely after a serious sexual assault. It was a rape by a group of boys when she was a child. So that's the context of the discussion. So if, you know, everyone is forewarned, if that's the context of the book. And the reason that I chose it is because of um, two factors. One is partly around the discussion that we have in the social sphere and in general on the news and media about larger bodies and the idea that obesity is a problem that needs to be solved and people just need to try harder. And what we see actually clinically is this relationship between trauma of several kinds, but the relationship between trauma and eating problems. And also something that I don't think gets discussed enough, which is sexual trauma in people's lives and children's lives and the long-term effects of that. So I, I don't tend to give trigger warnings because the evidence suggests that they aren't very helpful and they do more harm than good, but I want to make people aware of the context of the conversation if you haven't read the book. So just be aware that those are the things that we're going to be talking about. All right. So that said... Did anybody have, I had a couple of people say that they found the book very moving. Did anybody have any other observations that they wanted to make about the book, about the book choice? Any thoughts that you have, I'm happy to hear. Otherwise, I will kind of get on with my observations. Yeah. All right. I'll get started and and then we'll see where we where we get to so we when actually when I put pitched out to you guys because I a little while ago I said which books would you like us to do and actually a lot of books came up a lot of questions and requests came up around trauma and which is why we did the body keeps a score because really there was quite an interest from you guys around understanding more about trauma and I think that's really important because we can talk very generally about mental health And we can talk very euphemistically about self-care and looking after oneself. But 
we don't find it very easy to talk about the reasons why people might be struggling with their mental health. We don't find it very easy to talk about really the harms that happened to us early in our lives that might make us more vulnerable to things later on. And I think especially with sexual trauma, childhood sexual abuse, I think it's it's so impossible for people to think about that they just don't, you know, it's like brains get shut down, thinking gets shut down, people would rather look away from it. And what that does actually is to increase the vulnerability. Because if adults can't bear to think about something happening, then they won't be able to protect their children adequately. But if survivors see that no one is willing to hear or to talk about or think about the experiences that they've been through, then they are just consumed often with shame, with guilt, with a sense of responsibility for what happened to them. And it makes it even harder for people to reach out for the help that they deserve. And that's the reason that even though I know this is a difficult topic for people to be talking about, to be thinking about, it's not normal Instagram (laughs) conversation. I felt a responsibility, I think, as a psychologist, as someone here with an audience. And if we're thinking about childhood sexual abuse, then we know that the NSPCC statistics suggest that one in four children experience childhood sexual abuse. And that's probably an underestimate because it's so unspeakable and because boys tend, boys and men tend not to talk about it at all. So it's it's something that's actually endemic in society. It's happening a lot. So I think it's really important for someone who has an audience and I think a responsibility as a professional to be able to create a platform or a space where we can have these conversations. So I wanted to do that. Um, Go back to one of your questions. I love how complicated the topic was. When you see trauma in a film, there was always a clear resolution and it showed the ongoing trauma. So in the book, she, and I think what's so searing about Roxanne's or Miss Gay's description is how messy it is, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. She doesn't say, oh, well, then, you know, I got some therapy and now I'm in this fantastic relationship and everything is fine. You know, I lost some weight and everything is is great. What she says is that, quite honestly, something was taken from her and she spent a long time trying to reclaim that, to find it, to bring it back, to find her way back to herself and that for her has been a lifelong and and you know she she says she's in a much better place by the end of the book she's in a much better place but it's a lifelong endeavor for her and she continues to work through it and what was really striking was the way in which she was very very clear to to state and to explain that she had a very loving family parents were perhaps a little bit strict you know had expectations about academic performance but that they were they were loving and she knew she was loved by her parents, by her family. And yet, and yet she was still unable to find the words to be able to go to her parents after this thing had happened to her and say, you know, this is what's happened and I'm in pain and, and I need help. And I that's kind of the reason, again, that I wanted to talk about this is because that's partly the stigma 
around sexual assault, childhood sexual abuse, that there's something wrong with the victim, that the victim is the problem. And therefore it's something, a shame that they have to carry themselves. And I suppose I want to say very clearly now that that's not true. If anybody's out there who's been through this experience, that's absolutely not the case. And you were the child and they were the adult and you were exploited. So I I really, I think even in adulthood, people can wrestle with that reality. And partly what happens after people experience abuse in childhood is that there's an attempt to try to reconcile and make sense of it. This is a very confusing experience, a very traumatic experience. It can overwhelm the resources, the psychological resources of the child. And so there can be an attempt to try to wrestle back some power, wrestle back some control over something which is which was completely uncontrollable. Sometimes what happens is, and sometimes this is fostered by the abuser, so the, the, the abuser will say that the, the child was partly responsible in some way, but the child will take on that responsibility. Maybe it was something I did, maybe it was something I said, maybe it was because I was bad, maybe it was because I was good, you know, that there was something that I had done to, to make this happen or to, to mean that I kind of laid the the foundations for it to happen and again I just want to make that clear that that's not true you were the child and you were exploited and they were the adult and they had a responsibility to care for you and protect you but this this is a thing that happens that people are kind of drawn into silence around these sorts of issues and we see that in the book that that Roxanne just takes her pain and almost kind of runs with it. She leaves, she leaves her course, she runs across the country and then enters into this partly abusive, partly protective relationship with food and her body. And that's one of the things that really gets me around this very oversimplified discussion that is had and and we're going to be having more of since Boris has uh, decreed that the entire nation needs to go on a diet we end up in this incredibly reductionist, unhelpful conversation around people just needing to to lose weight. And if you've never been in that position of having a higher body weight and attempting to lose weight, if you've never worked with someone who has, where you've never seen the struggle and the effort, then it becomes easy to say that these people just aren't trying hard enough. And I guess what I want to say is, whilst I'm not suggesting that everybody with a higher body weight has experienced trauma of this kind or that anyone who has experienced trauma of this kind is is going to have this kind of relationship with food in their body we do know that there's a strong relationship between the two and we know for example so i just had a kind of look through the literature that in terms of uh, bulimia nervosa we know that one episode of sexual abuse in childhood increases a risk of bulimia by two point two and a half times more than two episodes increases a risk by nearly five times so we see that there is this kind of cumulative risk factor of a body-based trauma and one's likelihood you know again it's not consequential it's not definitely going to happen but one's likelihood of having a difficult relationship with food and body and that makes sense and it makes sense for two important reasons one being that we have an emotional relationship with food and if you've been around my page for more than 10 minutes you know that that's what I talk about a little bit that that, that we 
as well as you know eating well and enjoying food that we do have an emotional association with food we we use food in these non-nutritive ways we use food to comfort we use food to soothe we use food to distract we use food to connect ourselves with our grandma on a cold afternoon in her warm kitchen so we have these emotional associations with food I'm afraid you can't avoid those they are built in they start from your first feed when you're a tiny baby but then the second part of that is that we also have of course an emotional relationship with body and particularly when there has been a body-based trauma we cannot help that to be so. And so I guess I would just caution anyone, and you know, this is not to be damning or critical, but to caution anyone who thinks it's very simple or who thinks that they can look at someone walking down the street and just make a decision about why their body is the way that their body is. And that we need to have, A, a lot more compassion, but we also need to be able to suspend our judgment because you never know somebody's story. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. All right, and then quick back, go to your questions. Is there things a parent can do to create an environment where a child is more likely to share? Yes, and I will talk about that. What's the research around comorbidity with BDD, body uh, dysmorphic disorder and sexual abuse? I haven't looked at the stats for that. But what we do see is that in lots of trials where they've uh, spoken to women with what would be considered, considered obesity or super morbid obesity, 50% have reported childhood sexual abuse. And also emotional abuse in childhood is the other factor. So when they look at the split between men and women with disordered relationships with food and eating. It's sexual abuse 
and emotional abuse for women are the, the, the clear factors, the contributing factors. And for men, it's emotional abuse and physical neglect. So emotional abuse is this key factor in both men and women in this relationship between childhood adversity and adult difficulties. And it's not just, of course, feeding difficulties. We're focusing on feeding difficulties because that's the focus of the book, but other psychological um, concerns as well. So that's the context. And yeah, I guess it's going to be slightly less book club and more about kind of appraising these issues in the context of what Roxanne raises, unless you guys have any questions specifically about the book, but as we tend to use the book as as an organising theme to talk about some of these other issues. I did want to, whilst I had the audience and whilst I had you here, want to make some kind of clear points about what's important in creating an environment in which children can share, absolutely, but also in making sure that adults are doing what they can to protect children in the first place. So one of the first things that I would implore um, all adults to do, and this is adults with children, adults without children, adults who, I mean, teachers and things will, will already be well versed in this, but really anyone, is to believe what you see. And when I say that, what I mean is quite often we don't want to believe what we see or we don't want to believe that something could be happening and we'll want to you know turn a blind eye and wish it away on a on a much bigger scale we saw it with the what we see in the catholic church right that stories were coming out and even though there was this entire systematic cover-up there were also you know well-meaning catholics who just didn't want to believe it we just didn't want to believe that this terrible thing was happening in in their church with people that they trusted, with people perhaps who they'd had round for dinner. They just didn't want to believe it. And, and the very, very first thing that any child will need from you is an adult who has the capacity to believe what they see. Yeah. So and, and I think that's tough because these are unthinkable things, you know, and, and, and I say that and I mean that very seriously. These are unthinkable things. Nobody wants to think about them. We want to live in a world where these things don't happen and children are not at risk. But the statistics indicate that that's just simply not the case. And so it's really about being able to come to a point in your own mind that you can believe that bad things happen or is basically what I'm saying. Can we believe that bad things happen? And if so, can bad things happen to people that you know, children that you know, children on your street and at the hands of adults that you know, maybe adults that you've had a beer with, adults, you know. So it's really about having to have the wherewithal to tolerate the, the cognitive dissonance that comes up when you're faced with the possibility that, Either somebody I know has done something egregious and awful or that this innocent child has gone through something awful. But the first step is being able to tolerate that thought in the first place. Let me go back and make sure I'm getting everything. Yeah, so Ali says, her ability to tell the story with such raw, unfiltered language is amazing. And and it's really startling how thin the book is, isn't it? The, the, and how short the chapters are. I think that's one of the things. How starkly she's, you know, she moves on. I listened to the audiobook because I, I thought it was really important to be able to hear her tell her story in her own words. And, and quite often 
again, because these are unspeakable conversations, you'll see anonymized heads on news special editions or anonymous uh, stories in anthologies or whatever. I felt it was really important to honour her by hearing her tell her story in her voice on the audio. And it's unflinching in the audio as well. You know, there's something about the importance, again, of being able to, to, to see it as real and not as kind of ethereal something happening far away, but to be able to be contextualised um, in the reality. So, no, I absolutely agree. This happened in my family and the parents didn't want to believe the child. Yes, so that's something that I'm going to come to. So the first thing is to be able to believe what you see. The second is, you know, and I think about this in lots of ways of mental health, but the second is to be preventative. And so one of the things that I, and I, and I suppose parents do it because they don't want to, I don't know, break a child's innocence or they, again, they don't want to think about something terrible happening. So they just hope that it won't happen. But if you just hope that a terrible thing won't happen, it's like getting in a car and not putting on the seatbelt because you you just hope that you won't ever get in the crash. You have to, you know, it's fine to hope that it won't happen, but you need to make sure you're doing everything you can to keep your family safe. And that starts with the importance of, I think, teaching children, boys and girls, bodily autonomy, right? And this is something I talk about a lot in terms of adults. You know, I'm always talking about what I call self-possession. You are in charge of your body. It's yours. No one has the right to tell you anything about your body, whatever shape, size it is, whatever condition it's in at the moment. It's self-possession. You own you. But we tend to only decide that that's relevant or important in adulthood. And we need to start thinking about it much earlier in terms of letting children know that no one has the right to touch them you know even if it's someone that they trust even if it's someone that they know even uh, if it's a sibling because quite often there is incestuous abuse by an older sibling that never gets spoken about and again parents never believe so teaching children bodily autonomy no one is allowed to touch you even if it's somebody that they trust I think in the NSPCC they they use I think it's kind of basically the underwear areas to help in an age-appropriate way to teach children what areas are theirs and are private and shouldn't be touched looked at talked about and what's not appropriate and then to let that child know that if anybody even suggests something like that and I'll put the link into the NSPCC website where it goes through this that they come and talk to you and and I think one of the big problems that come across in terms of disclosure of sexual abuse is parents who can't tolerate discussion about sexual matters right so that again even if it's not about an abusive situation people who can't tolerate the idea of sex or you know dirtiness and dirty things find it very very difficult to tolerate these kinds of conversations and again it's about creating an environment where a child can ask you questions where they are taken seriously where you are curious about what they have to say and where you give their words value so I think uh, you know that's the setting the big thing that I want to say and it's 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 kind of devastating that, that I have to say this but if a child discloses abuse to you please believe them I cannot tell you this devastation that it does to someone's psyche 
for a child to have mustered the courage to perhaps, you know, talk back against an adult who they were frightened of or someone that they trusted or an older sibling, for a child to have found the courage to tell someone of what's happened to them, to then not be believed, you have to understand that it's a, it's a kind of shattering of that child's sense of trust in the world. And what I want to say is that people who've been abused aren't, I think there's a stereotype that people who have been abused are broken and damaged goods and they're, they're lost forever. That's not the case at all. And again, if when we're talking about stats that say one in three, one in four, you'll have to assume that many, of, if, if not you, then many of the people that you know will have experienced something like this and they're not broken and damaged and incapable. But the difference between someone who discloses abuse and is believed and someone who discloses abuse and is not believed is extraordinary in, in my experience. Because what it says to that person, to that child, is that you're on your own. You're on your own and perhaps that you distort their sense of reality. And, and that can be damage that takes a lot more work to undo and to reconcile. And, and I say this because the, I've heard now many stories of people who have disclosed stories and just been told don't say that it's not true how could you say that or you must have done it you know really shattering things and so those are the 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 three big things prepare children with bodily autonomy making sure that they know that their body is their own creating an environment where you can discuss difficult things without it being shameful without it having to be quietened down and put aside, and then believing a child. These, I think, are crucial foundations to, I think, changing the tide on a lot of the psychological distress that is endemic around around our kind of general environment and community and society. So those would be my three things. Let's go back to your questions. Are there also psychological patterns of behaviour to look for in abusers? The stats are incredibly high that what by the time someone is arrested, by the time a paedophile is arrested, they have usually abused hundreds of children. And so that's the other thing. If you hear of something, so there's this, this way in which often stories come out. Let's use R. Kelly as an example, right? People will say, oh, I knew he liked young girls or I knew something was off about him. Like People have this kind of back of mind sense that something's not right. You need to take that seriously. That what, what we need to be thinking about is that it's all of our responsibility to protect children. Yeah. And it's not you're not being out of place by raising a concern, because if that concern is correct, then you've protected a child. And and when you raise a concern, so either by talking to social services, a GP, or the police, they will know how to properly investigate or raise the level of that concern to the appropriate place. So again, it's coming back to that original thing of believing what you see and, and not dismissing something, not diluting your responsibility and saying, well, someone else will deal with it. Because what you need to to remember is that in all likelihood we're thinking about 
a child in need of protection. And I think we all have a responsibility to do that. All right, let me just check where we are for time. All right, so in terms of engendering bodily autonomy, there were some things that I wanted to say. So use the right names for anatomy. Again, and, and I, again, I think sometimes there's a worry about this because they sound too adult, the words sound too adult, but they're the biological names for things. And I think if, if you can't use them, it almost suggests that there's a shame to it. And that engenders a sense of shame about body that can end up leading people to stay quiet if and when something happens. Um, so if you can use the right names for the body, then then do. Just make it an everyday thing. It's, again, it's about making it something that we can talk about without being frightened, without you know blushing and going, Ooh. it's your body. No one is allowed to touch them without their permission. That includes teachers, coaches, doctors, clergy, right? So you let them know that all of these people who in the rest of life, you know, children are taught to be polite and compliant and to do what an adult says. When it comes to their body, we need to let them know that that's where they have autonomy. Another note that I have made on behalf of almost anyone that I have ever worked with is never criticise or disparage your child's body to them or in front of them to others, right? So, and I've, I've said this in my book I think I've got a whole section in my book which when I wrote when I sent it to my publisher I said I had to apologize I was like I'm sorry this chapter is a little bit punchy but it was written on behalf of anyone I've ever worked with and they said no it's absolutely fine we think it's really important and I talk about not comparing your child in a negative way you know don't say oh couldn't you be as smart as your sister or as pretty as your cousin or as bright as the next door's kid, like never do that. Please never do that to your children. It's it doesn't help. It does it doesn't help motivate them. It just makes them see that you think other kids are better than they are. Like please, please don't do that. And certainly don't do it about their bodies. Don't say, oh you're a bit plump or oh oh you've got you've got your mum's nose when you've already said that you hate the mum's nose just do not disparage because again this is about building autonomy and helping someone feel that their body is their own and you undermine that when you criticize a child's body or when you compare it to somebody else's and again this isn't to to condemn if you've done this I think I think it's a very common thing to do people do it offhand it's just to invite you from this point onwards to be much more mindful about it because and again you know I potentially see a very skewed sample. I get that. And so perhaps the people that come to me are the ones who suffered worst from having their bodies disparaged by their parents. But I can't see a world in which it's good for anyone. So how about we just stop doing it? So that would be uh, my next tip. And, And more broadly, because what it does, when you disparage their body, compare it to somebody else's, or even if you're sitting down watching television and commenting on somebody else's body on the television, all that does is to contribute to self-objectification. What it does is to create an environment, or I mean, the environment's already there, but it reinforces an environment and a set of beliefs that bodies are there to be looked at. Bodies are there to be critiqued. Bodies are ornaments, there to be dressed, shaped and remolded, rather than bodies are part of your entire being. Bodies are you. Bodies are incredible and fantastic and capable of 
amazing things, deserving of respect, deserving of care, deserving of curiosity and awe. Like, you know, and, and what you want to be doing, what I would love for parents to be doing much more is helping to engender a sense of awe and inspiration and affection for their bodies rather than reinforcing something that is already present, which is the idea that bodies are, are things to be looked at, judged, critiqued and reshaped. So I'm kind of laying down the law today, but, but yeah, I'm not apologising for it. Also, and I, I'm, I'm half tempted to caveat this again by saying that I see a particular group of people but again, I can't see a world in which this would ever be helpful. And the note that I've put to say is don't put your child on a diet. I I have never heard, I've been in practice, I've been training and, and practicing therapy for 20 years. I've been in practice for 10 years independent. I have never heard a positive outcome from someone whose parent put them on a diet. If I'm wrong, I am happy to be corrected. Maybe there are some outliers out there. Maybe there are some people who feel that it did them some good. I have never heard a story like that. I understand that parents want to protect their children, keep them healthy, look after them, keep them well. That is your responsibility, of course. I don't think a, a diet in terms of a calorie plan where you teach children how many calories are in foods and teach them that they need to exercise in order to lose weight is compatible with that. You know, by all means, change the way the family eats to make it more nutritious. You know, by all means, to start all of you going, you know, walking to school, you know, make these, if you're making changes, make them as a family. Please do not single your child out as having a problematic body. I've never seen a good outcome. It ends up hurting people, separating them from their bodies, making them feel like failures to their parents if they can't keep the weight off. And what that does is to set up these conditions of worth where people end up feeling that their parents would be happier with them if they if their bodies were different. So that their parents' love for them is conditional on the shape of their body. And I've seen this stated explicitly where people, several times, people have been paid by their parents not to eat. Please don't do that. Please. All right. So next on my list of things is to, as I say, to talk to children about sexual abuse, let them know um, about, and again, in an age appropriate way, I will put the links up, let them know because the silence is where abuse breeds. Silence and shame and stigma is what it, are the conditions that it needs in order to, to continue. But talking about it in an age-appropriate way, empowering your children to, to say no to an adult when it comes to their body is so, so important. To me, it was the other way around. I was too skinny growing up and my mother would always shame me for it. So this, so th you know, and I, I guess we're talking about diets in the context of the book, but yes, any kind of shame around um, a child's body is going to separate them from a sense of ownership of themselves and from an opportunity to be, feel proud um, about their bodies and to consider their themselves to be part of their body if you know what I mean so lots of us w live in a world which, where we're very disembodied so we kind of live in our heads and then our bodies are just these kinds of things that carry our brains around or carry our 
personalities around even because I don't think people think about their brains very much whereas it's if we can move and this is a big ask um, but if we can move much more to a state in which people consider themselves whole integrated and autonomous then I think we shift ourselves away or just gently nudge ourselves away excuse me from a sense of the body as an ornament and the body as something to be reshaped um, and looked at so what about teaching children healthier options for them to choose from so I mean there's there's there are lots of discussions around uh, around what we mean by healthier because I've worked with lots of people who have what when people hear healthy they hear low calorie and I think it's about helping children to understand when we think about bodily autonomy the very early things that you see when you're feeding children when you're feeding babies which is when they are full you know as soon as they have they feel satisfied they will turn their heads away and they know that's an automatic response that is an automatic response that we all had at one point but that we were socialized out of so when we're told to clean up clear our plates when we're told oh go on just finish that for me when we're told that it would be good for you to to have that you know all of these ways in which we're socialized out of listening to our bodies listening to those innate cues in order to satisfy something from outside of ourselves is part of that separation from what I call self-possession. And I think the skill, the art of the parent is to supply a range of foods. And I mean, and this will be different, you know, if there are particular health risks, that's something to discuss with the GP, but supply a range of foods in a non-anxious way and let, and kind of just, just supply those foods. Like if you supply them, if you present them, if you, if there's no anxiety around them, if you're not going, oh, I should resist those biscuits because they're naughty, your children will respond not so much to what you say, but from the example that you set for them. So it's if if you're thinking about food in these plus minus black white good bad ways, and that's what they're going to see. So often it's about the parent having a much more balanced approach to eating, a non-anxious approach to eating and, and having kind of just normal normal boundaries around food. And I say, I guess, normal in inverted commas because I think it becomes quite difficult because very few people have a relaxed relationship with food. But if you can be as non-anxious around it as possible, that's that's really helpful. My mother constantly commented on my eating and I had an eating disorder in my late teens. Maybe at some point I was thinking about doing a podcast episode called Mothers and Their Fat Daughters, because I think there's a very particular toxic relationship that can emerge there. I'm not saying that you were a fat daughter, but I think there's something very particular about what happens is very often, and, and much more than it happens with boys, is that women can see their daughters as an extension of themselves, and therefore that how their daughters eat and what their body their daughters bodies look like feels like it impinges and reflects on them much more than it would what their son looks like or what their son eats and what that can do is to really enmesh mothers and daughters in these very very toxic relationships around what the daughter's body should look like and then the the daughter's attempt to try to satisfy her mother so Okay. Hmm. Let me let me have a think about that. This starts from such a young age. Even pediatricians ask if you're feeding your child. It's 
it's really tough. And I, I, I know it's really tough. And, and in a sense, you know, I'm talking in quite idealistic ways about us living in a utopia where we have bodily autonomy and everyone just eats <laughs> until they're satisfied and then they stop. But if I can just, quite often what I'll say is that if we can conceptualise a world in which that's true, then we can start to play around at the boundaries of where those limits are in the real world and maybe move ourselves slightly towards more towards something that would be a bit better for us. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So th- these these dynamics get set up very early. I'm, I'm aware that we have strayed somewhat from the topic of the book. So my next couple of points, just so that you have them. And as I've said before, to, to not raise, and this one's specific to girls, because I think boys aren't raised in this way, but to not raise nice girls. And, and and this is in particular because girls are raised to be quiet and nice and polite and compliant and to not be angry and to be helpful. And whilst I don't think that's a necessary component to being a, a victim of abuse, I think it contributes to a way in which girls then have a much bigger dilemma around breaking the rule of trusting an adult or telling on an adult to be able then to disclose that abuse to somebody else so and (laughs) I'm not saying raise horrible kids (laughs) I'm not saying like teach them to smash windows but take their thoughts seriously if your daughter is angry she's probably angry for a reason I say this as a big fan of anger and I have a podcast on anger so you can listen to why I think it's fantastic. I've written about it in the book that anger is your emotion of self-esteem. And the reason I say this is because anger is your indication that something is unfair or something is unjust, right? So if you are, the example I always give, if you're standing in a queue or if you're driving along and someone cuts in in front of you or someone steps in in front of you in the queue, you get this little burst of anger. And people often confuse anger and violence. They are different things. Anger is the emotion. Violence is a behavior that may or may not be associated with the experience of the emotion of anger, right? So you get this little flash of the emotion of anger And what that's telling you is that something is unfair. Something is wrong here, right? And so if you silence your anger, as women are often taught to do, if you silence your anger, what you are doing is silencing your signal that something is wrong, that you're being treated unfairly or that someone else is being treated unfairly, right? Because we can get anger on behalf, we can become angry on behalf of other people. So if you cut yourself off from that signal, then you cut yourself off from recognising when you're being treated unfairly, right? And and that's when you are blocked from being able to advocate for yourself, right? If you don't even recognise that you're being treated badly, right? So let's say you've got a friend who always kind of takes the piss and is always making you pay for stuff, but you're like, well, I can't be angry with them because they're my friend. Then actually you never get to the point of saying, how about you pay for something? Or, you know, is this relationship particularly fair? So anger allows you to get to the point of saying, I deserve better than this, or that other person deserves better than this. And that is the foundation of self-esteem. I deserve better than this, is an acknowledgement of self-esteem, is an acknowledgement that you are owed more than the conditions that you're in. 
yeah? So when I say don't raise nice girls, what I mean is don't don't castrate girls of their of their legitimate anger. Don't cut them off at the knees when they are legitimately angry about things because their anger means something. And so if you can help your children to understand what their anger and what their emotions mean, then actually you empower them to A, understand themselves, but also B, to advocate for themselves, stand up for themselves. And and that will help to keep them safe. Yeah. All right. So, yes. So under not raising nice girls, I said teach them to say no. Teach them to value their minds and their opinions over their bodies. You know, value your body, but also value your mind, value your opinion. And I've said, (laughs) I I feel like I've maybe in quite a het up mood at this point. I've said teach them to fight, by which I mean, maybe it's good for girls to know how to box or, or wrestle or to do judo, some sort of martial art, not because they need it to defend themselves, but so that they know how to harness their anger and how to focus their aggression. And also so that they can feel the power of their bodies. Because I think girls are often taught that the most attractive thing about them is to be fragile and delicate and light and as small as possible. But a girl who is into sports or you know knows how to fight is a girl who knows who knows the I think the joy of knowing her own power I think that is a great gift to be able to give to a girl and my final point was do not disparage women's bodies in general so whether it's someone on tv whether it's someone in magazines hopefully that I don't even know if they exist anymore those magazines where they used to just be a big circle around parts of women's bodies don't read those <laughs> just, it's it's not helping anyone all it's doing is contributing to that that sense in which a woman's body is there to be commented on and that it's not it's not her right actually in the same way that hopefully you wouldn't be circling people's faces and going ha come over here look at that person's face we shouldn't be doing that with people's bodies because we are whole beings we're whole people we're not just brains on a meat suit and to disparage a part of someone is to disparage all of them and it would be really good if we didn't do that to each other life is hard enough so just gonna scroll back because i'm aware we're rapidly running out of time teach children to have a sense of self and boundaries for themselves yes yes exactly that so if someone oversteps their boundaries they can come to the parents or another adult absolutely if you can say this about other people but perhaps can't do it for yourself are you still building self-esteem not really because you're externalizing the value so it's always about being able to do it for yourself for me and I I think I said this in a previous book club no I said it in a previous video where I was talking about self-compassion so there's a video on my grid I'm wearing a pink jumper um, and I'm talking about self-compassion and there's a little bit of comment and conversation underneath because I've said if you can show compassion for other people but not yourself it's not complete because actually what you end up is putting your, doing is putting yourself at the bottom of the pile. And I think that erodes and undermines your own sense of self-esteem. So the skill and the art is to develop the capacity to give that thing that you find it easier to give to other people back to yourself. It's not good to tell children to stop crying in certain ways as teachers as express their emotions. I would agree. Or, or, or certainly the messaging we give around crying you know, oh, oh, don't cry. I'm like, cry. If you're sad, cry. It's important because crying is a recognition of your emotional states. And what we want people to be able to do 
particularly Brits, is to be able to recognise their emotional states. Anger is helping me recover from my ED. Anger for the lies in our society that I believe to change myself. Absolutely. Honestly, I feel like if more people could properly understand anger and harness it, we would actually be much, much healthier. I, th I think I see a lot of sickness and a lot of illness because people are suppressing their legitimate anger. I haven't done it for book club, but I did read it and I would recommend it. Rage Becomes Her as a good book, which talks about the importance of anger. And again, the example that I always give is of Miss Rosa Parks when she refused to give up her seat on that bus in Alabama. She she described feeling a blanket of anger cover her. But she wasn't violent, you know, she wasn't punching people. She was but she was there in her fury and her fury was legitimate because she was being treated unfairly. She was being treated in an unjust way and it was her anger her capacity to harness her anger which contributed to the civil rights movement and and changed the lives of millions so anger can be enormously positive if you can learn not to be frightened of it if you can learn to understand it if you can learn to harness it and to bring us all the way back to the actual topic of the book that we need to be much more compassionate in our appreciation of other people's bodies irrespective of what size they are never make a judgment about why you think somebody looks the way they do you have no idea our job as adults whether we have children or not is to protect children they are the next generation they are our future and if we want healthy societies what we need is healthy protected children and that starts by being adults who can believe what they see Thank you. <laughs> we are, I think, at time there. Thank you very much for your time this evening. For what I appreciate is a more difficult conversations than the ones we would usually have. I appreciate you sticking with it. I do think it's important. And as I said at the top, if this is something that has happened to you or you experienced, please remember that you were the child. It wasn't your fault. It's not your shame to carry. And I would encourage you, if you haven't yet, to find someone to talk to about it because you do not deserve to hold on to this by yourself. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 